Let us turn now to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the fourth chapter. Ephesians chapter 4, we'll read through this chapter. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body, for the edifying of itself in love. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness, but you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. In connection with our scripture reading, we also turn 
to Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 21. What do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church? I believe that the Son of God, through his his Spirit and Word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this community I am and always will be a living member. What do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that believers, one and all, as members of Christ the Lord, have communion with him and share in all his treasures and gifts. Second, that each member should consider it a duty to use these gifts readily and joyfully for the service and enrichment of the other members. What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no longer remember any of my sins or my sinful nature, which I need to struggle against all my life. Rather, by His grace, God grants me the righteousness of Christ, that I may never come into judgment. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Heidelberg Catechism uh, retains or, or it keeps uh, this ancient word that is found in the Apostolic Creed in describing the church as a Catholic church. And uh, those that word is is often associated with the Roman Catholic Church. And I realize that that could be a point of possible misunderstanding or stumbling with respect to the meaning of this language in our creed. Uh, people may ask, well, why? I thought you were a Protestant church. Why do you speak of the Catholic Church as something that you believe? Well, I want to remove any misunderstanding or stumbling over that word, but uh, we must seek to remove that not by sacrificing the word itself. Not by sacrificing, uh, sacrificing a word that is, uh, rich, uh, in its meaning, rich in its historical usage, rich in its biblical, uh, teaching. And, uh, as a general remark, we might, uh, say that we must be resistant to the, the modern tendency of dumbing everything down. We must, uh, not cave in to that instinct of wanting to make everything immediately easy and accessible to everyone. As if, well, all it takes is some sincerity in order to be a Christian. Well, yes, sincerity is foundational and fundamental, but in order to understand the Christian faith, it also takes effort. It also takes an ongoing effort to, to understand the riches of the revelation of God and the teaching of his word then. And so we must not surrender the word Catholic to those who misuse it, to those who misuse it to refer to one particular denomination, that is the Roman Catholic Church, a denomination uh, which in fact doesn't even bear the marks of the true church of Jesus Christ. Because it is not characterized by the faithful preaching of the gospel or the pure administration of the sacraments 
or the exercise of biblical church discipline. And we understand, we know, we believe that the church is not limited to one organizational structure, one particular organizational name or tradition. And it certainly is not defined by being under one universal bishop called the Pope. Such teaching is anti-church. Such teaching is anti-Christ. Because Christ himself and Christ alone is the head of the church. The church on earth and the church in heaven. And to deny that and to replace Christ with an earthly representative, a vicar of Christ, has been recognized historically by the Protestant Reformation churches as being anti-Christ. Jesus Christ is the only head of the church. He is the only supreme authority over the church. He is the one foundation of the church. He is the only mediator of the church. He is the only high priest of the church. In fact, apart from the priesthood of all believers, he is the only priest of the New Testament church. The church is his new creation. The church is his work. And it's a glorious work spanning the centuries, a church that is found throughout the world. Christ gathers, Christ defends, Christ preserves his church, which is defined uh, in this Lord's Day as a community. It's a community of faith or a communion of faith. Uh, the article concerning the communion of the saints is not a reference to something other than the church of Jesus Christ, but it's a description of the church of Jesus Christ in her life and fellowship, which is a communion of saints. Christ gathers, defends, and preserves a community of faith. And we begin, again, by considering uh, in more detail the fact that it is a community or a communion that is built by the Son of God. Christ as the Son of God is the subject of uh, answer 54. I believe that the Son of God, through his spirit and word, out of the entire human race, and there we have that rich description of the work of the Son of God. It is the Son of God who said, I will build my church, and the gates or the powers of hell will not prevail against that. And he made uh, that affirmation, that wonderful declaration uh, following Peter's confession of Jesus as, as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's upon the foundation of that confession and that truth that Peter spoke that the church is built. I will build my church. It's his church, and he is the one who builds it. And he builds it despite all opposition. The powers of hell will not prevail against it. Now, even that word build uh, is important for our understanding. The, uh, a, a variation of that, that same Greek word that's translated build is found three times in Ephesians uh, chapter 4. It's found in the description 
of uh, the offices of the church, which the ascended Lord through his Holy Spirit uh, gifts the church with, prophets, evangelists, apostles, and then pastors and teachers. They are given by the ascended, exalted Christ for what? For the edification of the saints, for the building up of the saints. Every member of the church contributes, again, through uh, Christ and his work towards the edifying of the church in love. And we are to speak the truth in love. We are to speak what is good for necessary edification. Now, I know that's a word that we don't perhaps use in our common speech. But the word itself involves the idea of an edifice. And an edifice is a building. And we do use this language of building one another up, right? And if we use that language biblically with understanding, we're not simply talking about about positive encouragement and uh, affirmation, but we're talking about the kind of speech that serves for spiritual growth. Sometimes that's correction. Sometimes that's teaching. Sometimes, indeed, it is encouragement. Sometimes it is help. But that's how Christ builds the church, through the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel is not all positive. It involves correction. It involves teaching, instruction. And by these means, we are spiritually built up. Christ is working through these things to build his church. And if we ever do uh, build one another up, biblically, there's only one explanation for that, really. And that's not that we're just such nice people that really are encouraging to one another. The explanation for that is that we are instruments of Christ's work through His Spirit, working among the members of the church. He is building up the saints. We are being used to do His work. Christ builds the church. It's His work from beginning to end. And that includes every part of the work. Compare it to an actual, uh, literal building project. What's involved in building uh, a home or building some other structure? Well, that home is always built according to a plan, right? And if it's an elaborate structure, it involves elaborate planning. Very often it involves the work of engineers and architects. And it will require... Uh, draftsmen and perhaps the bl- well, blueprints certainly that are to be followed because a building is uh, built according to plan. Well, we understand that uh, the church is a community according to God's plan. It is made up of members who have been chosen before the foundation of the world with a choice that will bring them all the way to their uh, calling to Christ, to their appearance in His presence as holy and without blame. And that's according to God's eternal plan. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And of course, that really emphasizes, doesn't it, that uh, this is a work of grace, amazing grace. Because the church is gathered and it's built of members that are called out of the world. 
The word church itself, ecclesia, refers to those who are called out. And that means that the church is of, made of a people that are called out from the wreckage of a depraved humanity, rescued from destruction. In that connection, we could speak of another aspect of uh, the building up of the church as it compares to any kind of building project. Well, what do you do if you're going to build a, a house? You need material, and you need to obtain that material. And uh, it's not just laying around to be gathered. It, it must be purchased. And uh, contractors will want to use good material if they're good builders. I'm not experienced with building, believe me. And the few things that I've tried to construct out of wood involve me going to Home Depot or some other lumber yard and, and picking out some two-by-fours or whatever. But I know enough to try to check if they're straight and uh, see that there's not too many knots in them because I want to use good material. And I select good material. I try to, even for a simple building project. But the Lord has no good material uh, to select from. It's as if he must build this church out of material that's that's ready for the fire. And that means the purchase is a very costly purchase. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her. And for her life he died. The material of the church is purchased by the blood of Christ to turn children of wrath into children of God by grace, obtaining for them the forgiveness of sins and beginning this work of purifying them and sanctifying them. We are a purchased people. In any kind of building project, what is necessary? Well, you need to gather that building material and bring it to the building site. And that's what Christ does. He gathers his church through his word and spirit. Remember that also this article is under this broad heading of the work of the Holy Spirit. Christ works through his spirit in calling uh, his church unto himself. Jesus described that calling in the Gospel of John where he said, uh, I am the good shepherd, I know my sheep and am known by my own. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. They're gathered through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel. We're given an instance of that in a remarkable way on uh, on Pentecost, where the gospel was proclaimed, and Christ by his Spirit worked powerfully. And people were convicted of sin, and they cried out, what must we do? And we hear that uh, with many other words, Peter testified and exhorted them. Now, those, those words are, are each important. He testified. He bore witness. He bore testimony to the truth of who Jesus Christ is, what he has done. And then he exhorted. He applied it. He applied it with this call to be saved from this perverse generation. And then we read, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. 
the gospel was preached by the power of the Holy Spirit. Many believed and they were gathered. They were added. We read 47, the concluding verse. It says, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. To be saved is to be gathered to Christ. But to be gathered to Christ is to be gathered into the fold of his sheep. Gathered into that one flock. A job site is often secured from vandalism and theft. And Christ defends and preserves his church so that no one is taken from him. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Christ gathers, defends, and preserves his church. I, I realize that this analogy of a building project will break down because no builder is going to stay on that job site forever and make sure it's not vandalized or that the, the owners of the property uh, take good care of it. The comparison breaks down. And we can see that also in our next consideration in the fact that Christ has but one church. There is one building when we think uh, of the church in this comprehensive way as our catechism does. Christ doesn't move from project to project. He doesn't finish one building and then move on to another. He devotes his love. He devotes his exclusive love to his one bride. His church is one community of living saints, living members, all of whom are united spiritually to him and to one another by a true faith. We heard that in the language of Paul describing the church when he said there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. And that describes to, that describes believers throughout the world all those who by grace are living members of this church, they are united to Christ and they belong to his, his body. Though found throughout the world, though they may be ignorant of one another, yet they share a common bond of faith and union with the same shepherd. His church is one. One community of living saints, living members, whom he gathers, defends, and preserves. And our catechism uses that present tense, but uh, we, we must see it as something that has taken place in the past, down through the centuries. Christ has gathered and defended his church through every generation up till now. And he's doing so today. He is still gathering, defending, preserving his church, and he will unto the end. To him be glory in the church through all generations. Amen. Christ's work will not fail despite all the opposition of hell. It is a church that our 
Confession also describes as a church that's gathered and defended and preserved from uh, throughout from the world, from the beginning of the world to its end. Yes, Scripture holds before us this great work of our Lord Jesus Christ, building His church. And whatever else we say about the church has to be grounded on this comprehensive, vast uh, view of this glorious work of the Savior. But our confession becomes more specific as it speaks of the church as a communion practicing fellowship in Christ. To be added to the church means to be numbered with believers. We read that in verse 41 of Acts chapter 2. It says, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. To be baptized by one spirit is to be baptized into one body. Paul uses that language in 1 Corinthians 12, where he says, By one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. And indeed, what he says is true of Christians everywhere, but he's not talking about this simply in terms of spiritual, theological terms. He's talking about it in connection with how the church is to live in its actual, concrete, local expression as a body of believers in fellowship with one another, having differing gifts, but in such a way that no one can say, I have no need of you. But the members of the body are joined together in a relationship of mutual care, mutual service, and mutual cooperation. Acts chapter 2 outlines uh, the fellowship of the church in practice. And there are a number of features here that are that are listed. We can't give uh, complete attention to them. We want to just note them and make a few observations. There are seven features. First of all, their fellowship was word-centered. That's actually the first thing that's mentioned. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They together received the teaching of God's word. And a huge part of their fellowship pertains to that mutual learning under the word of God. Secondly, it's interesting that the temple served as a center for their gatherings for worship. Now, there were soon thousands of Christians, and uh, they didn't simply gather in one place, but mention is made of the temple as being a center in which they gathered for worship. So continually continuing daily with one accord in the temple. Now that's a reference to the literal temple. In fact, we read in the Gospel of Luke, after the ascension of Jesus Christ, that the disciples continued daily with one accord in the temple. Now that was a temporary situation, but it is significant 
that there was kind of a central gathering place for the church to meet. Thirdly, they observed the Lord's Supper together. Verse 42 says they continued steadfastly in the breaking of bread. And we might think, well, in connection with what is said later on in terms of going from house to house and eating their food with gladness, does that refer to the Lord's Supper? Well, in this instance, we ought to be uh, sure that it does. Literally, it says the breaking of the bread. It's a definite reference to the breaking of the bread. And that refers to that supper which our Lord Jesus Christ had instituted uh, for the church. Now, we'll see that their uh, eating together was not limited or confined to observing the Lord's Supper, but that is highlighted here in this reference to their life and fellowship together. They observed this supper of the Lord. Fourthly, they shared their possessions. In verse 45, it says, And they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all, you know, a lot of people want to stop there and say, see, the church was, was marked by communal living. There was a kind of equal distribution and a sharing of goods. Yes, there was a sharing of goods. And there was a selling of possessions. And that has a, a historical reason and, and context. But it doesn't mean that the church somehow adopted a permanent style of communal living and a community of goods. All we have to do is read the next phrase. Very important principle of biblical interpretation. It says, as anyone had need. In other words, they made sure that everyone's needs were met. There was a mutual sharing of material possessions and goods that characterized the fellowship of the church. Now, I'm not saying that uh, that particular form is something that is no different than what we do. No, there were historical reasons also for selling possessions. But the point is that the, 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 the principle here is that of, of a sharing in order to meet the needs of God's people. They prayed together. They continued steadfastly in doctrine, in the breaking of bread, and prayers. Sixthly, they ate food together. And there is the reference of breaking bread from house to house. Uh, they ate their food. And uh, it's, it's just a, a recognized fact that in the early church, even the observance of the Lord's Supper was often uh, part of these gatherings uh, for uh, meals that were shared, referred to as love feasts where Christians would get together and they would eat together. And uh, even as was the case at the institution of the, the Lord's Supper, it was following a, a meal. And that appears to be also uh, something that characterized the fellowship of the church. They ate together. And they praised God. And they were glad together. It's not so complicated, is it? And these things that are described here indeed are practiced in all different kinds of, of formats in terms of the place of worship, the central gathering under the preaching of the gospel, and the observance of the sacraments. There's great variation in the way these things are observed through, uh, some of them through Bible studies or small groups or, or prayer meetings or uh, visiting together in our homes and enjoying fellowship, men's breakfast that 
many of us enjoyed yesterday. Very many ways in which these basic, ordinary things are observed by God's people. Oh, they're ordinary, yes, but brothers and sisters, they're, they're earth-shaking. Why is that? What do we see in such things? Well, to the eye of faith, we see our Lord in the midst of his church. We see the church building work of Jesus Christ in these ordinary things. We see the Lord Jesus riding forth, conquering and to conquer spiritually. We see him as the shepherd among his sheep, feeding them. We see them as the the devoted, beloved husband, nourishing and cherishing his bride. We see him sanctifying her through his spirit. We see him beautifying her for that great day of the wedding feast that is yet to come. People who don't see these things, people who do not participate in them, people who don't have their heart in them as things of great significance. What's the explanation for that? They do not have faith. Or they don't live by faith. Or their faith is not being instructed and directed by God's word and spirit. If they, th- if they think and practice the notion that you can divorce the Christian life from the communion of the saints, from membership in the body, those things are, are, are not separated in scripture. Sometimes we have to ask, what is lacking in so many professing Christians today? And again, I think I gave one, one answer. Faith. A biblical faith. But maybe we can sharpen that answer a little bit and put it this way. What is lacking in so many professing Christians is fear. Now that may sound shocking. I'm not talk about, talking about a kind of terror, but I'm talking about a, about a kind of godly reverential fear that recognizes the work of Jesus Christ for what it is in its concrete, actual manifestation in this world. You know, it can sound very pious to speak about Christ building his church. And it's thought of in in spiritual terms, as if it belongs to some invisible realm and has nothing to do with what people do on Sunday. The Bible doesn't allow that. And I say fear because that's also a feature that characterized the early church. It says, then fear came upon every soul. Now, what does that fear involve? The deep reverential recognition of the work of God, of Christ among his people. Don't despise the church of Jesus Christ. Don't slander her. Don't reject or forsake the church of Jesus Christ. Bear with her weaknesses. Again, not at all cost. We're not talking about tolerating uh, heresy or uh, so-called churches that are not following God's word, seeking to practice it in sincerity and submission to the Lord with reverence for him. 
But we must not despise the church for God's sake, for Christ's sake. The next chapter in the book of Acts has something to say about that. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira, we might say their great sin was despising the church. But they thought they could pull one over on the church, right? They pretended to to uh, give their goods for the sake of the fellowship of the church, but their hearts were filled with covetousness, and they failed to fear God. And they lied to the church, and in doing so, they lied to God. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They were judged. And then we read then, and great fear came upon everyone. The fear of the reality of God working among his people. You know, some of the most encouraging things sometimes that I hear of, of visitors uh, coming into our worship service is a kind of anxiety of really wanting to know the truth and a kind of recognition that there is such a thing as gospel truth and I don't want to be deceived. I want to know it. I want to believe it. I want to learn to live it. You know, that, that kind of anxiety and that kind of concern, personally, I must say, is much more encouraging than a kind of casual approach. Oh, yeah, I like your church. There's some nice things about this church. Maybe I'll hang around for a while. Now, I'm, I'm drawing a character, but you understand that there's some of the most significant evidences of God's work in bringing people to himself are the kinds of things you read about in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. What we want, brothers and sisters, for our visitors coming into this place and hearing the word of God is the conviction that God is among us. And it's evident in his word. And it's evident in our reverence, in our worship, in our praise, in our love for one another. And for those who come among us, do not despise the church of Jesus Christ. He takes it very, very personally. Practice the communion of the saints. Practice the communion of the saints as those who belong to this community of the forgiven. This community of those who know the grace of God. To them, as redeemed sinners who are living members of the church, not because they're better than others, because God has had mercy upon them and brought them to the Savior and washed them with his blood. Yes, it's it's good, it's proper that this Lord's Day uh, 21 includes this article of the forgiveness of sins because it kind of helps us to see these things together. It's an appropriate, it's appropriate to, to see these things together. Yes, Ephesians chapter 4 describes the church as sharing in Christ's heavenly gifts. The gifts of office through the work of the Holy Spirit. He gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists. There were those temporary gifts for the foundational uh, work of the church. But there are those ongoing, continuing gifts of pastors and teachers given for the edification of the church. But we realize uh, from this passage that those gifts are by no means limited to office. They extend to each member. Each member contributes something to the edifying of the body in love. Verse 16, from Christ, from Christ, the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. In love. It's, it's as though 
this work of edification and mutual cooperation has this qualifier. It has this, this atmosphere, this condition that explains its working. And that is love. Not love at the expense of truth. Not unity uh, at the cost of compromising God's word. But love that is of God. And a kind of love that comes to expression almost in a climactic way at the conclusion of this chapter where it says, And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Only shared grace makes these gifts edifying. The opening of Ephesians describes the graces of the Lord Jesus Christ in their exercise. That's how it begins, where the Christian walk is described in terms of all lowliness and gentleness with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Lowliness, long-suffering, gentleness, those are the graces of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those are qualities that grow only in one kind of soil. These are qualities that grow in the hearts of those who are forgiven, who believe in God's great forbearance towards them, God's great long-suffering towards them, God's forgiveness of them. You see, the fruit of the Spirit is far more important than any particular gift that may be exercised in the church. And remember the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is what's first? Love. Love. Chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians describes spiritual gifts in the church, many of them those temporary, extraordinary gifts that are found uh, in the New Testament church that so many people get all excited about as if, oh, this is really the mark of a, of a living church. They, they have prophecies. They speak in tongues. They, they have healing services. But even as Paul addresses uh, those gifts in their exercise in that formative part of the church, he concludes by saying, earnestly desire the best gifts, and that was word-centered gifts. But then he says, and yet I show you a more excellent way. And what is that? That more excellent way, 1 Corinthians 13. Love. Communion with one another, true communion and fellowship with one another, flows out of communion with God in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is based upon his pardoning grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. I came across this uh, statement by Abraham Kuyper in connection with this and its importance for the life and fellowship of the church. He says, A new commandment our Savior gave us that we should love one another. This new love which he recommended to us is the most tender love imaginable on earth. Since it is in the stream of this new love that our God will draw near unto us and will lift us up to himself. It is in the stream of this new love that our God will draw near unto us and will lift us up to himself. And he who fails of understanding this new love and uses the church and the holy fellowship of love to propagate his own particular views achieves no other end than the breaking down of Salem, or the breaking down of shalom, of peace. 
He puts to naught the tabernacle of God. And as far as he is able, impedes the fellowship with him. You can't separate fellowship with God, with fellowship with the saints in love. And it's interesting that uh, of all the things that Kuiper could have zeroed in on, he uh, zeroes on zeroes in on the, the the danger of using the church as a place to propagate one's particular views and opinions. Now we all have our views and opinions on a variety of different subjects, and that's okay as long as they don't touch the 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 the, the fundamentals and the truth of God's word. But that's different than always having an agenda, always trying to influence people with our own particular spin on things at the expense of love. Value that fellowship, value that communication, communion in love, cherish it, seek to promote it. That's God's work among us, within us. That's how he uh, builds his church. Amen.